Hello and welcome to the Fintelec podcast series. I'm Shirish Patak, your host for this podcast. I currently head Fintelec Advisory Services, which is focused on research, training and advisory in AML CFT across Asia. We are now in May of 2019 and today I will be speaking with Archana Kotecha of Liberty Shared on issues related to human trafficking. Archana Kotecha is a UK qualified barrister and LSE graduate. She is currently based in Hong Kong. After practicing corporate law for 7 years with KPMG and DLA Piper, Archana joined the UN Refugee Agency's legal protection team. She has served on the UK Human Trafficking Centre's Victim Care Committee and the NSPCC's Anti-Trafficking Hotline Committee. Since joining Liberty Shared, Archana has produced multiple best practices and reports involved in policy and advocacy and educated human rights practitioners, financial institutions and governments on trafficking in persons including legal and anti-money laundering frameworks. She also works with the private sector to highlight human rights risks and improve the due diligence processes. Archana currently serves as the Asia Region Director and Head of Legal at Liberty Shared. She has recently been named as one of the top 10 innovative lawyers in the Asia Pacific by the Financial Times. She is an alumni of the US Department of State's prestigious International Visitor Leadership Program. Archana will also be speaking at the Fintelect Asia AML CFT Summit in September 2019 at Hanoi in Vietnam and I would urge our listeners to try and attend that event as well so that you could meet Archana and a number of other experts. Right. Archana, thank you for being with us today and agreeing to share your insights on this very important subject. At the outset, could you give our listeners a quick overview about Liberty Shared and the work that you're doing as an organization? Sure, and thanks for having me, um, Shirish. So Liberty Shared is an anti-trafficking, anti-exploitation, non-governmental organization, which is Hong Kong and US registered. We were set up about eight years ago, and the idea was really to try and work on a couple of things one was improving the quality of data relating to exploitation as it was happening on the ground so working with ngos with more sophisticated technology um and databases in order to gather a more comprehensive and holistic data set and the second thing was to actually help that data travel from the front line uh, to the front desk so to help data be actionable um, in order for people very far away making uh, important decisions to make more informed decisions about what is actually going on on the front line and access to justice was also something that you know we were always very concerned about um, particularly in relation to access to remedy for victims of exploitation and i guess fundamentally all of our programs are very collaborative so we our our ngos thrives pretty much on actually collaborative relationships with a whole range of partners from government from the private sector various ngos across the world so currently um i'm based in asia and we cover a lot of southeast asia but it's fair to say that liberty shared's activities are global very much as human trafficking is a global problem Right thanks Archana. Uh Archana could you give us an idea of the extent of the human trafficking problems in the world today and also maybe around the region that you see and highlight some major trends that you've seen evolve over the years. Sure. So 
I guess, you know, from an extent perspective, the latest statistics put the problem of modern day slavery at affecting 40.5 million people globally. Of this number, 24.9 million are people who are living and working in conditions of forced labor. What do I mean by that? I mean, people who are being forced into either domestic work or who are working in factories, in sweatshops, um, in agricultural um, industry, in the mining industry, etc. Um, and, and most of these victims, in fact, over 65% of global victims are actually based in Asia Pacific. And, and another interesting statistic, while I'm on statistics, is that the G20 countries collectively import 354 billion US dollars worth of products at risk um, of being produced by modern day slavery. And the whole business of slavery today has been estimated to be worth about 150 billion US dollars a year. Um, it's one of the fastest growing forms of crime globally. And um, the issue has more spotlight today than it has ever had before. And there are a number of reasons for this. It's on the high on the agenda of many um, political leaders. It's high on the agenda of the Pope. Um, many businesses are now understanding and realizing that you know, supply chains uh, don't happen or don't exist free of exploitation at some point or the other. There are some, um, in terms of significant trends, we are seeing a lot of um, exploitation in certain sectors, for example, agriculture, hospitality, construction, um, mining and extraction of raw materials, electronics, etc. And I think one of the, the significant um, industries that is at risk is the recruitment agency. Because in, in every migrant's journey, a recruitment agency plays a very significant role. And we often find in the cases of exploitation that the issues start to appear at recruitment level, whether this is formal recruitment by an agency or informal recruitment at village um, or at community level. Another significant trend is that the attention has somehow not shifted away, but has also started to, to focus on not just simply who is the final perpetrator of the act of trafficking itself, but rather on who's investing money in these businesses and where is the money from these businesses going? So in essence, who are the people, who is the network that is aiding and abetting and allowing this business to flourish? Which is why the financial institutions have come into the spotlight because there is now tremendous focus on, well, who is investing in all these sectors when they know that these are sectors that are rife with exploitation? Um, why aren't they imposing and demanding better conditions for people? Why are they investing in human rights violations? And the other thing is any, any funding or any money that comes from crime is subject to anti-money laundering le legislation. So if money from human trafficking is indeed proceeds of crime, and if the products of human trafficking are proceeds of crime, then why are, aren't our financial institutions being held more accountable for this? So that spotlight has, has, you know, has sort of really gathered um, momentum in the last two to three years. And I guess, you know, in, in terms of other couple of trends, there's, there's very significant um, highlight on the links between human trafficking and terrorism financing, but also in terms of sanctions violations. So that's been an area of, of interest for financial institutions. And I guess, you know, one, one of the major shifts for me is 
this nascent acknowledgement that we are talking about a serious legal and financial and reputational risk issue rather than just a human rights violation. And I think that has really taken, the needle has taken a lot of time to slightly shift on this point. And I think one of the, the reasons why the needle has started to shift here is because globally we are seeing the advent of regulations that are aimed at improving transparency in supply chains. So now companies of a certain size across many jurisdictions in the world are being required to submit reports that are signed by their board of directors over what efforts they're making to combat exploitation in their supply chains. So as the environment gets more regulated, it is very likely that the issue will get the recognition it deserves as a significant um, legal, financial, and reputational risk. Right. Uh, Ashuna, you mentioned some industry sectors that are more susceptible uh, to this issue. Uh, are there any current typologies or patterns that you're noticing? I mean, that, that's a, a difficult question because I think with typologies, they, they can be very specific to sector, very specific to geography and, and to industry, um, etc. But, you know, just, just generally speaking, um, with, with fishing, for example, and, and with various other agricultural uh, products or sectors, one of the difficulties we face is the mingling of goods with goods sourced from elsewhere at some point. This happens with palm oil, it happens with fish, it happens with oranges, with tomatoes, where the goods get mixed up and it becomes very hard to determine what came from where. I think there is, there is a lot of talk at the moment about blockchain technology being used to identify the source and the journey of various products. And that might make things um, a little bit easier. But essentially, because of the multiple layers in the supply chain, the outsourcing arrangements that exist that are not always very clear, and the fact that in many supply chains, there are many small holders or small companies and businesses or medium-sized businesses that um, are not, don't have the resources and are potentially not as well regulated as um, the larger corporations. That's where you see a lot of incidences of exploitation um, taking place. And I think one of the, the big challenges that, that larger corporates face is owning up to the fact that a lot of, uh, of cutting corners that takes place at supplier level is actually generated by um, draconian purchasing practices and negotiations um, by buyers, which, which forces suppliers to keep the prices very low. And that's where the corners are cut. So we're seeing this not just, you know, in industries like fishing, we're seeing it in palm oil, we're seeing it in rubber, in electronics, and, and across a whole range of, of sectors. But equally, you could have a very different typology, for example, with bride trafficking. Um, there's been a very large incidence of bride trafficking towards um, China as a result of uh, the gender gap in China. Unscrupulous people are preying on, on vulnerable women from neighboring countries and charging a fee to take them to China to be happily married. And, uh, you know, the, the outcome is very different. Now, there are many industries that are benefiting from this, the marriage bureaus, the travel agencies, in some cases, informal recruitment outfits, etc. Now, we know that a lot of the, the funds generated by this are, are in the form of cash. 
this money is not transferred using bank transfers, etc. It's often a, a cash-rich industry. But what we also know is that there is a great deal of investment of these funds in luxury items or in real estate or in the casino business or the catering and hospitality industry. So the commingling of legitimate and illegitimate wealth, complex corporate structures in order to really muddle up liability and the chain of liability are becoming very apparent in, in typologies across uh, both sex trafficking and labor trafficking cases. Right. Ashna, on the law enforcement side, what would you say are some of the factors that you see inhibiting the LEAs or the law enforcement agencies from making a more significant difference in actually curbing this menace? I mean, we get the elephant in the room out of the way. So corruption is, is a major problem. That's one. And then the second thing is, you know, human trafficking is often cross-border in nature. It's a network-based activity. Unfortunately, much of the criminal justice approach has been very focused on perpetrator. So that means usually the guy at the end of the food chain is taken out. Now, the guy at the end of the food chain is possibly the most replaceable guy in the network. So we find that the activities of law enforcement are often not directed at bringing the entire network down. It's quite unusual to hear of entire networks being pulled down. And I think that highlights one of the significant issues with the criminal justice approach, because it relies very heavily, even at a courtroom level, on victims testifying. Victims being people who have, are vulnerable and have been traumatized. And entire cases hinge on these individuals. That is simply not the right way to be approaching law enforcement from this perspective. It's absolutely critical to be corroborating the accounts of victims using the financial um, footprint. So how was this business undertaken? Where, what do the money flows tell us? What do the flow of goods tell us? How can we use this to corroborate what we have? So in essence, a financial investigation must accompany a criminal investigation. We are not seeing this complementarity um, around the world just yet. And the, the other thing is that, you know, there, there is a tendency to focus on a person. And in many cases, there are corporates that are driving a lot of, of these issues. We know that laws around corporate accountability are very weak, um, particularly in the region, and that there are very, very, very few cases where corporates are held accountable and have their assets seized for being involved in this kind of activity. I think in Europe and in the US, we're starting to see company directors being held accountable, and that's potentially a trend that could catch on in, in Asia, but at a much later date. Uh, we're not just there yet. Now, from a financial um, law enforcement perspective, um, I think there is much more that can be done in improving the quality of reporting of suspicious activity and um, the way FIUs deal with these issues. I think it's fair to say across the region that many FIUs are very understaffed and under-resourced. And depending on the quality of the FIU and the, uh, the quality of the suspicious activity report and the volume of activity as well. Um, it may be very hard to see a financial investigation through on that front. 
But it is a really, really important part of the investigation that financial institutions are filing suspicious activity reports that tie down to human trafficking and that these are then taken up by the FIUs and investigated appropriately. And of course, you know, it, it must be said that one of the most significant challenges around producing better quality uh, suspicious activity reports is that people filling out these forms need to be very well informed about what it is um, that they're looking at. But also, we currently don't have a box of magic indicators that would help us say, this is definitely a trafficking case. The indicators that are out there to point to trafficking are actually very generic. They could point to a whole host of other issues. So I think we, we continue to work on this front um, with partners in the financial institution industry and, and in the NGO sector to find what are the ways in which the quality of, of SCRs can be improved, um, what type of data is required for that, what type of you know, predictive analytics, et cetera, would help with that so that banks are better able to um, operationalize the risk um, system in order to identify proceeds that are coming uh, from human trafficking and to report these as required. Building on that, Archana, uh, you did mention about uh, quality STRs and the need for institutions to file them. You know, a large section of our listeners are from banking and financial services. What would you say are the imperatives today for the entire financial compliance community in the fight against human trafficking? What do you think they should really be doing? I mean, you know, I definitely don't want to play the moral and legal imperative. I think it goes without saying that having a business or having business models that thrive on the exploitation of the most vulnerable in society is entirely unacceptable and abhorrent. Um, we are talking today not just about a gross violation of human rights, but also a very serious legal, financial, and reputational risk issue. This should figure high in any risk dashboard of any financial institution, particularly where you are banking sectors that are at risk. Um, the proceeds of exploitation are most certainly proceeds of crime, as are the goods produced by exploited people. And, you know, with entities like the Financial Action Task Force really zeroing in on this issue, I mean, FATF produced a, 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 an almost 40-page typology document um, last year in, in July. And I think the, the writing was on the wall and it was very clear that this is an issue of concern. And we have seen partnerships such as Gimlet in the UK, um, Project Protect in, in the Canadian FIU FinTrack, and various other such initiatives really show that this issue is becoming very, very important. So the, the imperative really is that there has already been a fine um, to Western Union previously in connection with a human trafficking matter. There will no doubt be more fines coming um, in that direction. So I think it's really, really important for um, systems to be reviewed, for staff to be trained, for KYC procedures to be tightened, and for the net to be cast wide for issues that relate to human exploitation, particularly in geographies that are at risk, in sectors that are high risk. And I think there is no two ways about it. And as eradication of modern slavery becomes you know, 
a sustainable development, has become a sustainable development goal. And also given that um, many banks globally are actually being required now to file um, statements under the Modern Slavery Act or the Australian Modern Slavery Act, the French Act or any of the, of the US legislation, it's becoming clear that it is very important for banks to be looking at this as a serious issue and to be looking at proactive ways in which this can be addressed. Arjuna, thank you so much for these insights. I'm sure they'll be very useful to our listeners. Uh, and we also look forward to hearing you at the Fintelect Asia AML CFT Summit in Vietnam in September. So thanks a lot for being here with us today. Thank you, Shirish. I look forward to seeing you in September.